0: Alright, good morning. We are on the light front page right now with our panellists, Irene Chui from Astro Radio Newsroom and Azam Wan Hashim from Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs, Ideas. And of course, the first thing, uh, well, it is a new year. Happy New Year to both of you. Happy, Happy New, new Year. Alright, so 1st of uh, Jan 2020 is a public holiday. The papers are still running when we open the papers and you start seeing about what has happened the night before. New Year's yeah. uh, countdown and... It's
1: not all good, is it? No,
0: it's it's <laughs> trash. Uh, we're talking about uh, <laughs> what, what's what been reported is 9 tons of trash were cleared up by the BKL personnel for more than eight hours. Um, And let me me ask you this, all right? Should authorities step up with... Look, we're not supposed to litter. But uh, should authorities step up with new enforcement to summon people who litter? Irene.
1: I think definitely. What you did not mention is that it took 100 people, eight hours, to clean that up, which I find ludicrous. (laughs) So yes, we definitely need tougher laws. Why is Singapore so clean? Because they've got fines. You litter the first time, you get convicted... That is two thousand Singapore dollars. Then it's four k. Then it's ten k. In a way, it is ruling by fear, but it works. Hey, the streets are clean.
0: Eventually, it does mm. work. Anything yep. to add to that, Azam? Well,
2: I'm um, I ear on uh, uh, towards the middle. Although I do agree that uh, a more stricter enforcement needs to be in place. I think uh, I'm I'm more in favor of of uh, the decision not coming from the top down. I I, I think this needs to be something that's. Brought up within society You know People need to be A bit more civic minded And uh, not littering And uh, I I think Although enforcement and laws and punishment can be in place to help, not not really help, but encourage people to not do it uh, through a punishment system, I think there needs to be a, a positive reinforcement here uh, amongst
0: people to not litter. Of course. Well, I mean, like my dads, our dads probably teach us, don't throw your rubbish everywhere. Throw it in a bin. If you don't, uh, you don't see a bin, keep it to yourself until you find a bin. All right. And uh, when it comes to big events like this, should there be stricter penalties on litter bugs? Uh, especially during big events like New Year's Eve countdown? Should the organiser be responsible in preventing littering, you think?
2: 100% it's not all under the organiser. It's definitely under the responsibility of the citizens themselves to not litter. Again, I do say that there there shouldn't really be a punishment system. I think there needs to be certain incentives to encourage people to not litter. Maybe a little bit more uh, trash cans everywhere to make it a little bit more accessible for people to throw out rather than litter. At the same time, I think when people do litter, other people need to call it out. You know, like there needs to be this uh, civic mindedness within everyone so that everyone just tells everyone else to not litter and, and there needs to Good. be negative reinforcement not in just laws but from people themselves.
0: That's right. So that's civic mindedness yeah, but in terms but of authority. Yeah, yeah. In
1: terms of the organisers I absolutely agree. You can't hold them 100% accountable. After all we're all adults here. Yeah. We know what should and should not be done. Remember a few months ago there was a marathon in KL and there was this huge thing about how there were banana skins and cups and everywhere lying all over the highway. I was at that run. All right. First of all okay, there were not enough trash Cans provided by the organizers. Okay. But on the other hand, even at places where there were trash cans, people were still just throwing everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. They're just running, running. Oh, I'll throw it here, I'll throw it there. Yeah. And it comes back to your mindset, mm-hmm. how you were brought up to be. Like you said, if your dad never taught you, yeah. oh, don't litter, you're going to think, oh, it's fine. This is completely okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, yeah, when it comes to organizers being held accountable uh, for prevention uh, of littering, oh, well, not to the point of, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're saying, not to the point of actually penalising them, but uh, you know, more efforts can be done to prevent it like, uh, for example, Irene has pointed out maybe put more trash cans or something like that Mm. In your opinion, uh, I'll ask Azam first, uh, what was the turning point for Musli that led to his resignation? You're absolutely right. Uh, It's quite tough to just put a
2: specific point in time where where he's to blame and there's a turning point you know uh, like you said this is a huge uh portfolio uh, everyone's looking into the education ministry i think masley um has received a lot of criticism over his tenureship uh, as a uh, minister you know i guess it began with the the black shoes thing which is obviously just a headline thing and it's just to, to to grab people's attentions to to pour up a uh, fire in the news um and then yeah, and then uh, uh, a- after the Black Shoes thing, there was a huge uh, uh, introducing Jawi into the curriculum, which, which again spurred up a lot of criticism, spurred up a lot of public you know, unrest, which led to a lot of uh, uncertainty within the government and, and a lot of criticisms within the government and within the public. I think it's quite tough to, to pinpoint a, a turning point uh, for Mazi. I think, He's gone through a lot of blunders, and that has largely to do with uh, the communications and the media and the way that they've kind of turned this whole narrative. I think overall he's not as bad of a minister as we might think, but I think uh, over time the accumulation of criticism and the, the wrong moves and the communication all combined together. I think recently, if if you were to point to something, the more recent uh, Jawi unrest with public protests and uh, a lot of public uh, showings of disapproval I I think that might be the the
0: main turning point. Right. And Irene, what do you think is the turning point for this?
1: To me, it's quite clear. I think it's the Unimap issue. Oh. Yeah. I don't think that the education ministry responded as people would have hoped for it to do. Yeah. To be fair, to refresh your memory, the Unimap issue is when uh, University Malaysia Perlis had a series of exam questions that touched on very controversial topics. Um, Some people say it's racist. There was the Zakir Knight issue. They right. talked about LGBTs and all that. And when people when there was a big hoo-ha about it, the education ministry said that the university has autonomy with accountability. Basically, they will not interfere. Which is the right move. The government should not be interfering in education with in um, public institutions, universities. But that's not what people want to hear. So what I think that people might have been a little bit more happy with is if this authority figure came out and said, the university has autonomy, we will not interfere, but we believe that you must be more tolerant, maybe look at your vetting process for exam questions, if they said something else. And this whole Unimap issue came on the back of you know the Javi controversy, the Sunny Hart controversy. Um, people were wondering whether the free breakfast program is well thought out, whether it's being implemented in too much of a rush. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many backtracking and U-turns and I think that the Unimap issue is just the straw that broke the camel's back.
0: To ask, in your opinion, who is best suited for the role of Education Minister? Uh, I
2: think uh, the the future Education Minister definitely has to be someone who's uh, not just technically uh, adept at uh, handling the portfolio, but also adept at handling the political situation as well. I mean, you really need to be careful what you say in public because we have seen that certain... Things being said, can be turned to something huge, right? Um, definitely, uh, you know, uh, you need someone who is uh, kind of uh, revolutionary in, in their education. Uh, uh, I mean, we we all know that the Malaysian education system
0: needs an overhaul. As all right. well. Alright, and Irene, what, what do you think this how this is going to play out? Who is best suited for the role of uh, Education Minister, you think?
1: I'm not falling into your trap. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> okay. going to get what, in trouble.
0: Alright, what kind of person is it that you expect? Someone
1: with thick skin. Hmm. Has to be somebody with thick skin. Because this is a very difficult portfolio. I would say one of the most difficult aside from maybe the Finance Minister's position. The thing is that you can't appease everyone. We are a multiracial country. You can't make one decision that's going to make everybody happy. But you have to be somebody who's willing to take on criticism and feedback before you implement anything. So let's say it's black shoes. You have to talk to multiple people before you decide, should we do this?
0: Right. Yeah. In Malaysia, there are fifty e-wallets uh, company, and versus uh, in China, with billions of people, they only have two e-wallets. Now, <laughs> when it comes to e-wallets, uh, Irene, I'll ask you first: Are, are we overdoing it? Fifty. We
1: are definitely overdoing it, but I don't think that you can really compare Malaysia and China that way. You have to remember that China is a bit more government controlled, so it makes sense for them to only have WeChat and Alipay as the big players that we know of. And in Malaysia, we are very much a a country that encourages people to innovate, to grow, to develop something new. But then on the other hand, I'm saying that having 50 is excessive and it shows a lack of collaboration and intelligence sharing. So for example, I think that, oh, I can do e-wallets better than you can. So I come up with one, instead of going to you and saying, maybe you can make this one tweak and then we'll have a product that's even more elevated. In the end, I have a product, you have to product. Maybe mine's green, yours is yellow. That's the only difference.
0: All right. And 50 e-wallets to you, Azam. Uh, we are overdoing it, aren't we? Well, I mean, I completely agree with Irene. I don't get why you're comparing.
2: Look, you're comparing China to Malaysia. One's a relatively open economy and the other one is a controlled planned economy of course they're going to have selected companies that can do this you know they essentially select winners in malaysia i kind of i like seeing this competition i like seeing 50 companies there i think we're at the early stages so there's going to be a lot of companies sooner or later they're going to you know just funnel through to maybe 10 companies maybe Currently, uh, you might say that we are overdoing it. I completely agree with you that there's a lack of cooperation between the companies. I think that's a, a smart idea. And I think some companies are thinking about that. Like, how do they survive in the long term? But I think right now, 50 companies, I mean, it's not really an issue in the short term. I think it's really more of an issue in the long term. Like what's going to happen for the companies that go out of business? You know, like what's going to happen to the customers that have the money in there? Um, I think right now at its early stages, it's fine. Uh, competition's healthy. It's good.
0: All right. Which brings us back, which brings us to the next question about sustainability of these, uh, you know, of having 50 e-wallets in the long run. What do you think? How do we, how do we sustain this? Or it's some might fall out.
1: It's definitely not sustainable. Okay, it's, it's like when you first start working out. There's so many programs out there. So you've got maybe 50 different kinds of workout programs, fitness routines that you can follow. So you try all of them out. Eventually, you whittle it down. CrossFit, nah, it's too hard. <laughs> Weightlifting, oh no, I crushed my toe. Something like that. And eventually, you whittle it down to maybe one or two workouts that you can commit to. And I think that's what's going to happen now. Having 50, like Azam said, that's great for the current economy. Because people are competing. They're forcing each other to innovate. How can we survive? Maybe we merge, maybe we have better programs. But at the end of the day, maybe a few years down the road, you're going to see one, two, maybe three big players Mm -hmm. and that's it.
0: All right. So it's uh, pretty obvious what we got from this discussion is that uh, maybe it's not such a good idea to be comparing Malaysia and China because it's two different kind of markets and economy and regulations that Mm. we're talking about. Uh, But uh, sustainability, 50 e-wallets, maybe a bit too much and eventually it's just going to boil down to a small number. It is something that benefits people, you know, this whole petrol subsidy thing. So why does it take so long for them to implement this new policy?
2: Um, You bring up backpedaling. I think that's not really fair. I don't think they're completely making a U-turn. In this case, I actually side with the government. uh, I like that they're taking all the steps necessary to properly implement the system. I understand that it's very important for the B40 group, but it's also important not to get it wrong. Unfortunately, this has taken a really long time. They've, uh, like you said, delayed this many, many times. But I think, again, it's quite important to get the implementation correct. This isn't a simple uh, petrol subsidy. It's actually they're, they're trying to target the people to get the subsidies. They need to get the steps where they identify the people who actually need it. It seems like they've gotten through that step. Uh, secondly they need to see how this will affect you know prices of uh, petrol uh, uh, the the community and then finally they're still talking to you know petrol stations how do we actually implement this how will you guys actually adopt this so that people can use their PSP debit card whatever it may be right they really need to get the implementation wrong so that things don't go wrong before in the past we've seen that You know, subsidies kind of go into the hands of people that don't really need subsidies. So I'm really happy, to be honest with you, that they're taking a long time to get the targeting correct. Unfortunately, it's taken a a much longer time. So, you know, I, I understand why people are disappointed.
0: All right. And Irene?
1: I'm completely supportive of the government taking more time to think about this as well, because like you mentioned, and it's not just the B40, you know, it's also part of the M40 group. So let's say you take half of the M40, you're looking at 60% of Malaysia's population. It takes a long time to track down every single person. Now imagine you don't get it right. You miss out on, what, 10% of the people? Sounds like a small number, but put it in context. That's a huge number. Like you said, petrol prices is Bread and butter. I drive to work and it's going to affect everything. Missing out on 10% of the recipients. That is a that's got huge consequences.
0: All right, so yeah, government looking into it. Uh, Azam, you would think uh, that you know they are working into it, but it's just a lot to be done. Um, uh, it's just quite unfortunate that they have announced a certain date and they're just not quite ready for for to, for the implementation just yet. Okay, so what we're talking about here is many arguments have been has ar- arise from uh, Digo, right? From e from motorcycle e-hailing, and what we're asking here today is how will safety be monitored for riders. Of course, safety is the main priority when it comes to motorcycle e-hailing. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good angle that we're looking at the safety of riders instead of passengers because we talk so much about the safety of passengers. But in this case, the passengers have a choice not to get on the motorcycle. But for the riders, it's going to be their livelihood. And I do not know what's the plan (laughs) for ensuring their safety. I've been on the website. I've listened to the interviews. I've done a lot of reading into this. Maybe I'm missing something, but there does not seem to be any indication about how safety is being provided for these riders they say that there's going to be training but that's a very vague word to use training
0: all right and you think this would worry some uh, potential Hillen riders the guys the passengers because they don't know uh, what are safety measures huh? yeah for sure I
2: mean I think it's quite difficult to measure safety uh, in this case and uh, the the risk is quite high I mean uh, it's much higher than a passenger vehicle I mean if you crash on a, a motorcycle I think the the risk of uh, health injury a really bad injury is pretty high. Yeah. So I don't know how they're going to uh, measure the safety of riders, but I think they can take uh preventative steps to ensure the safety, make sure that the riders know traffic laws, training as you say air quotes there. Right. You know, they they need to have the same kind of like licensing regulations as uh normal passenger vehicles, if not even higher. But when you're on the bike, it's really really difficult to ensure safety.
0: All right. And thinking about it is the so ride right, sharing services, there will be other riders- ride-sharing services besides Stego Market they'll be entering our market and I think there'll be some guy who wants to be an entrepreneur who will want to start another ride-sharing service uh, how sustainable is it you think?
1: I think right now might not be a, the right time to talk about sustainability mm-hmm. because we only have one at the moment yep. and we're looking at another one coming in I think for a developing market like Malaysia it's okay for us to have maybe four, five just for them to hash it out like how we have car hailing like Grab and then you've got other brands coming yep. up as well so that's healthy competition. I think that safety is still my main concern.
2: Yeah. How yeah. I'm in this case, I think competition can actually impede on safety because I mean I don't know how many uh, uh, e-hailing delivery—I don't know what they're called—the the delivery companies, uh, Grab Food, you know, Food Panda—they drive through traffic lights like it's nothing, you know, like uh, because they're competing with one another. You know, the companies are trying to implement a competition between each other to win out. In terms of sustainability, uh, I mean. It's quite interesting to see how this will play out, like how, how motorcycle e-hailing will play out in, in Malaysia. Uh, I think we have a lot of motorcycle riders originating in Indonesia. We don't really have the same geographical like, challenges of uh, ensuring access to, to motorcycles. So it's interesting how it's going to play out. But overall, generally, I'm uh, quite in favor in, uh, of e-hailing companies uh, in the sense that it provides opportunities for uh, the unemployed uh, youth to get jobs. It'll be interesting to see what they can do uh, in terms of food delivery or, or
0: in terms of, uh, you know, Dago uh, uh, e-hailing services. All right. Uh, real quick, are you going to take one of those motorcycle e-hailing? You think you're going to try it out? Uh, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> actually. It, it could be a good experience. Irene? Heart, no. <laughs> Heart, no. <laughs> All right. Thank you, uh, Irene, and also Azam for being here this morning for Light Front Page.